Hello and welcome to episode Wayne Gretzky of the Cost for Pointcast. I'm your host, Trevor Shackles. Today is going to be a season recap edition of the podcast, and joining me is a previous guest and colleague of mine, NKB of Silver 7. Nate, how's it going? I'm good. I didn't know I was joining for such a historic episode. I, I know. Prepared, uh, some some more in-depth <laughs> material if I knew. Uh, but yeah, happy to be here. Looking forward to the chat. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for coming on. I can't remember the last time you were on here, but it's definitely been a while. Um, now, the 21-22 season isn't quite over for the Senators, um, although as we record this on Wednesday, they have just two games remaining, and, and they're probably done by the time you're hearing this. And I thought we could recap the season by keeping it pretty open-ended, as there's, uh, of course, a lot to talk about. And first of all, I think we can start off with some positives. It's always always good to start off with that. I have a list of some positive developments from this season, and hopefully you have some as well. And I thought we could just go over three each, just discuss them, kind of go back and forth. And um, Nate, I'll let you take the first one here. Sure. Yeah, I, I think they're, even though the season hasn't turned out maybe as well as the Sen's biggest optimists would have hoped, there are definitely some positives. Um, obviously, the biggest one, this is not going to be a surprise to anybody, I I don't think is um, the progress of Tim Stuzla. And mm -hmm. I think that for the Sens, the progress of Stuzla is really, really important because he is, in a lot of ways, the key to them eventually becoming an elite team. And I think that's the case because of all the players that are already on the team, especially, and then maybe including all the players that are kind of not on the team but are in the wings, and I'll get to that in a second, he's the one that has the potential to really become an exceptional player. Like, I think Brady Kachuk and Drake Batherson and Josh Norris and Thomas Shabbat are good to very good players, and I'm not disparaging them when I say um, that I don't think they'll be exceptional, but I, I feel like none of them are going to be top 10 players in the NHL, whereas Tim Stuzla... I think this season showed enough for me to believe that he could become a top 10 player in the NHL, um, which I, I think you need if you're going to win the Stanley Cup eventually. You need at least one of those guys. Um, and I think that the, the part about Stuzla's progress this year that's been so encouraging is twofold. One, that he's doing it as a center, um, which I think is, is funny to think back the start of the season because he was lining <laughs> up on the wing at the start of the year. Yeah. I think we've all kind of, uh, you know, memory hold that now because, you know, he's been he's been so successful as center and probably uh, if you caught DJ Smith in an honest moment, maybe he'd admit that he'd like to have tried him at center sooner. Um, but doing it at center is so key. Um, and particularly um, the way that he's been able to tilt the ice at five on five. So even though he, by and large, has not been the beneficiary of the Sens' top wingers, his most common line mates are Formanton and Brown, who are, who are fine, but are not Batherson and Kachuk, the Sens are still much better off by shots, by expected goals, by goals, however you want to look at it, uh, when Stuzla's on the ice than when he's off of it. And it's just his ability to drive play 5-on-5, five five, his clear progress in terms of his confidence with the puck um it's really positive i think his first year in the league was good uh like everyone was happy um really needed to see this kind of i would say almost quantum leap forward 
um, and he's and we've seen it. So that's like to me the biggest, most obvious positive right off the bat. Absolutely, I think I agree with all of that, and I think what people might have forgotten is that, as you said, he had a good rookie season, but he wasn't necessarily a shoe in to become a, a star elite player. You know, like this is a guy who was coming from a German league and, you know, there's not that many guys that turn into stars, you know, playing for, in the DEL. And yeah, last year, his possession metrics were pretty bad, especially defensively. And it's been a 180 this season, right? Like he's been one of their best defensive players. Um, that move to center is just so huge. I mean, obviously now they have him and Norris up the middle. That is just massive right like two young centers under the age of what 24 i guess um yeah i mean like and he has so right now he's got 57 points in 77 games i think if he just has a bit better luck bit better bit better line mates could have easily easily had like 70 points this season yeah actually one of the things i was also going to touch on in terms of his production um is that and maybe maybe folks are aware of this maybe they're not his five-on-five five production is actually down this year <laughs> versus last year wow. at, on a on a on a rate basis. What's changed is that his production on the power play has been incredible, and there's some pros and there's some cons to that. Like, ultimately, you know, y- you want the guy who's ostensibly going to be leading your team at five-on-five five to be producing at five-on-five. Five. Um, but you know, goals are goals, and so you know, if you're getting them on the power play, it's it's, it's still good. I do think, though, that, you know, getting back to what you were saying about line mates, if Stuzla has line mates who are, you know, more capable of generating offense, who are better finishers, um, his five-on-five production is going to jump next year, too. So I guess I just, all this to say, and I'm sure we'll get into, you know, personnel choices and improvements for next year, too. If Stuzla is lining up with guys who are able to, you know, to finish some of his setups a little bit better or are better able to feed him the puck in advantageous situations instead of him having to do all himself, I think his five-on-five production is going to jump too. Um, And I'm sure we'll talk about the power play, but, you know, his work on the power play has been incredible and I don't see any reason why that would regress next year. For sure. And I think what's also hilarious is just seeing, obviously, over the past, like, month or so, the entire NHL fan base just coming for Strutzler's throat, you know, saying how much of a diver he is. And I don't know. I, I I honestly hate this discussion. I feel like there's probably like a tiny bit of truth to it where it's like, yeah, he's probably going down a bit easy. But first of all, this is a, a 19-year-old kid who isn't – just isn't that strong, right? Or did he turn 20? He might have turned 20. He's, but He's 20. He's, he's 20, 20, yeah. So, but, but either way, like this is a kid who is – certainly not as strong as he's ever going to be and I feel like a lot of the time he's just going down the wing so fast that it's not really going to take a whole lot for him to get dragged down you know what I mean so yeah like sometimes he probably goes down a bit easy but I feel like 90% of the time they're penalties anyway so it is just pretty funny seeing how bent out of shape all these fan bases are with Stritzle including Brendan Gallagher yeah, I mean, the, I think the players are one thing. Players are going to have their opinions, and I mean, Gallagher's comments were hilarious to me for a yeah. variety of reasons. <laughs> but the fan stuff, I think, is at least in part driven by the way that broadcasts are edited. And this is, you know, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but a lot of fan opinion and fan discourse 
is shaped by the way that the games are broadcast and what the commentators say during the broadcast. Yeah. And what the broadcasts are trying to do is hook on to a narrative and a storyline. And they're trying to drive a storyline. And the Gallagher critique of Stuzla is compelling. Even if you don't think it's necessarily true, it's a scintillating storyline. And so what you're getting is... Um, edits on broadcasts where every single time that Stuzla gets hooked or he gets cross-checked or he gets a stick in the face, which happens every game, um, the camera immediately pans to him. We see a replay of it, right? <laughs> and if you remember, like the one that got Leafs fans particularly worked up was the incident with Nylander, mm-hmm. where they kind of got tangled up. Stuzla did not even complain. He just went back to the bar, to the bench, if memory serves. But the editing of the broadcast is such that they're kind of feeding into that narrative. Like, oh, you know, Stusa drawing a sketchy penalty again. You know, look at that. And so at least to me, a part of the kind of like fan, you know, outrage for lack of a better term about it is driven by, you know, the way that the the broadcast wants to feed storylines. Like if every player had a camera panning to them every single time that... <laughs> They felt there there's an infraction. A lot of people would think a lot more players were were whiners and divers because let me tell you, every guy chirps to the ref all the yeah. time. Like every guys are chirping the ref all the time. This is not a Tim Stusla, you know, unique phenomenon. And it's the same. Like it reminds me a lot of of the early Crosby days, where mm. because Crosby was the center of every game, the camera was always on him. He took a lot of abuse because that's how you know lesser players tried to slow him down and there was started to be this in my mind somewhat you know distorted narrative about how much he complained to the rest when really he's just on the ice all the time he's getting you know infractions committed against him all the time and so yeah he's talking to the ref but every player talks to the ref so i i think that's been a little bit blown out of proportion for sure okay and last thing on stitzel here um i think it is 100% true that the narrative is different or at least slightly different because he's German. If, if he was Canadian, 100%. there's 100%. no way it's talked about this much. No, I, I, I a hundred percent agree. There's, there's hockey in my opinion is gradually getting better about this. Like I've, you know, I've been a, f- a fan of NHL hockey for long enough to see the way the discourse has changed a little bit. Like, you know, we don't at least have Don Cherry on Saturday nights, you know, yelling about Euros and visors anymore, but there, there is absolutely still that bias there. So I'm, I a hundred percent agree with you. For sure. Now. Okay. Uh, second positive development after Stutzla, I would say Drake Batherson becoming a point per game wing- winger. Um, you know, he's only played in 44 games this season because of his brutal injury from Arendelle, which honestly I'm still pretty pissed about, but you know, this is a guy who, again, he had a really solid season last year, signed for that incredibly team-friendly deal, $4.9 million, And now that's looking like one of the best contracts in the league just because, you know, this is a guy who I think you can comfortably have him as at, at least 70 points next season, maybe even a point per game because that's the pace he's on right now. So, you know, having him, like, they really needed a top-line right winger, and he's their guy. So I think that's huge. Totally agree. I think that um, the thing about Batherson 
and the reason that um, I actually didn't have him as one of uh, one of my three positives, not because I don't think he's been a, a, a positive development. I guess I just felt like the signs of him getting there were starting to be clear by the end of next year. So mm-hmm. for me, like I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like this is um, a very big thing for the Sens because yeah, the, the right side was was looking a little, you know, punchless. I kind of felt like towards the end of last season, the stuff that he's doing now is already starting to show up. So like, it's like, it's, it's almost like a continuation of, of, of last season. Um, So I guess I'm not, I'm not surprised, but it definitely is a huge positive. Um, The Batherson contract is, is funny to think about in contrast with the Colin White contract Mm. where, you know, both were kind of bets on guys that had, limited nhl track records um and you know one has turned out obviously as you said very well for the sense in batherson's case and one has turned out not so well for the sense in, yeah. in collins white case and i'm sure i'm sure we'll get to that yeah i just i mean i i agree there's not there's i just don't have much to add there he's just been really good um and he the only thing i can hope for is full health for him next year because you know high ankle sprains are are no joke um, and he's come back. Obviously, that goal uh, in overtime against the Devils was incredible. I do still feel like he has looked physically limited at times. Like he's looked a little awkward. He's looked a little stiff. Um, but you know, that's what six months worth of, of uh, off season and training camp will be for. So hopefully, he's full health at the start of next season. For sure. And I think next season, as you say, he he should be recovered by then. And um, yeah, just really fun to watch. Love having him on that top line. Do you want to go for your second positive development? Sure. So the second positive element I had here, uh, which is something we already talked about a little bit, is the power play. And the reason that I'm so bullish on the power play is twofold. One, they are executing about a 20% clip, which is fantastic. Now, the whole league actually has gotten better at the power play the top power play units are chugging along at almost 30 percent which is actually pretty incredible and i feel is kind of an underreported fact um (laughs) because not a lot of team like it used to be the case that uh, a power play percentage in in the mid to low 20s would get you towards the top you know four or five spots in the league um but this season a couple of teams seem to have figured out um a formula for for even greater success but 20% 20% conversion rate, which is where they're at for the season, is fantastic. Um, and I feel like as the season has gone on, the top five players on the main unit have started to show a lot of the um, kind of synergy that's necessary for a good power play to stay good, right? Um, they've got Norris's shot, which kind of sets up as uh, a primary threat. And then on the other side of uh, the diamond, they have Stuzla handling the puck on his strong side. And I think when you have those those two kind of sides, it makes it very difficult for a box to shade one way or the other. Because what are you going to do? If you sit on Norris, which is what the Devils were trying to do the other night, um, you're leaving Stuzla a lot of space to operate with um, on his strong side, which is you know, not going to turn out well for you. Um, And if you try to play it straight up, 
you know, you do open yourselves up to the possibility that, you know, Norris is just going to blow it by your goalie, which he's been doing it all year. So, yeah, the synergy between that group, they all fit in, in a great role. Like, Kachuk is, to me, pretty much the perfect net front guy. Like, he's, you know, he's a big body. He can stand in front of the net. But he's also skilled enough that he can make the little bumper pass. Uh, or he can pop out into the slot. He's got good vision. Um, and, you know, Batherson is a great distributor from where he is, too. I guess the only thing you could maybe say is, you know, Chabot doesn't exactly have a cannon from the point. Like, it's fine, but it's it's not going to scare anybody. But the chemistry between the four forwards in particular is spectacular. And it gives me, like, I, I don't see why they can't get better. Um, they could absolutely be a top 10 unit next year. It really is insane. Like those four forwards, watching them pass the puck around, it's it really is something else. Like I think that it's easily the best power play group they have since you know since they had Heatley, Spets, and Alfredson. Um, and I've seen some people say like even make the case for having Brandstrom on that power play instead of Shabbat, just because he's a bit more shifty and can kind of move the puck around. I don't know about better necessarily, but he's just gives a different look. Um, but yeah, that's maybe like their one weakness is that lack of a kind of Shea Weber kind of shot from back there. But man, I mean, I don't know the exact number now, but Norris was what, like third or something in the league in, in power play goals. And that was with missing a month of action. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree totally. The one thing I would say just <clears throat> in terms of not having, you know, a Weber type shot, up top is that while it would be nice if you know everything was the same and they still had the guy with the cannon up top one of the things i think that's happened with nhl power plays um, is that teams have discovered that bombing from the point is actually not a good way to produce a high level power play Um, and the the puck movement that the sends are chasing um, and that they're using with those four guys is what actually generates the most goals and it you know, it, it's not as tempting to try to bomb it from the point when you don't have a guy with a with a cannon, right? Like, if you look at the um, the power play profile of like the Blues and the um, Rangers and the Leafs, which are the three teams that like really have an elite power play, their heat maps are all hash marks in it. Mm-hmm. None of those teams are powered by guys bombing slappers and playing for rebounds. It's it's just triangle passes until you find the best shot in the slot, right? Uh, and so, you know, to me, the foundation of the four forwards is there. And actually, you know, as a final point on this, um, the power play to start overtime against the Devils, DJ sent out the four forwards. Um, and I was, and left Shabbat on, on the bench. And I was watching the game actually with my wife at the time. And I commented to her that that would probably be what I would do, it would, I, it would be what I would I would describe as, as the correct call. It's what the stats and the analytics say in general. Power plays with more forwards are more productive. Um, and I was really happy that DJ did that. I also like that he's been using three forwards in overtime. Like he he's kind of been leaning into the more aggressive side of things lately. And I, re- I really like to, to see that as well. Um, yeah, so that was just a bit of a tangent that I... I thought of when I was thinking about those those four guys. No, that's good. I, it's very interesting stuff, especially. Um, I mean, I hadn't really explicitly thought about the fact that 
you know, teams are scoring, you know, around the hash marks and things like that. But I mean, it makes sense. Um, and yeah, just having, having those four forwards, as you said out there, it's just such a massive advantage. Um, man, I'm, so I'm looking at the list of, of positive developments here and, and I'll, I'll say my next one and there's still going to be ones that I'm going to miss out on. So we'll briefly touch on them at the end here, but the next one I'm going to say is Brady Kachuk taking a step forward offensively. Um, you know, in the first two seasons, he was, or sorry, first three seasons, he was about a, a 50 point player. And, you know, this season he just reached 65 points last night. Um, you know, he's one goal away from 30. Hopefully he can get there um, in the, in his next two games. And I mean, I will say this season's goal totals and, and point totals, they definitely are inflated because overall offense is up. But still, I think that is, even with that, taking that into account, that is still a positive step forward for him. And it seems like he can actually play on that top line. It's not as if he's just a placeholder for, for someone down the line. I think he can, you know, if they do get a, a better player, let's say in this draft, a left winger, if they do end up getting a more skilled forward, he can certainly play on that second line. But he has so much chemistry with Josh Norris and Drake Batherson that it's it's great that, you know, he isn't just some glorified grinder, which I don't think any of us really thought, but I think some other fan bases might have thought that. So he's proving that he's at least close to worth his contract. And, you know, he's been a fantastic captain this season. So I think just showing that he is worth that money, he's worth the captaincy is is fantastic. And I, I used to be on the Thomas Shabbat captaincy trade uh, train, sorry, but I'm definitely happy they picked Kachuk instead. Yeah, I I agree that um, Kachuk's been a great captain. I was also I'm all I was also on the uh, the the Shabbat team and the the great debates of uh, who should be the next captain of the Ottawa Senators. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I I think Shabbat also would have been a great captain, but I've been For sure. very pleased by um everything i've seen from kachuk but then also and i think this reflects well on kachuk the role that shabbat has still maintained as as i think to me Quiet this is leader. all you know yeah exactly but it's all i mean you know we're all guessing a little bit outside looking in you know you we only hear so much but the perception that i get is that kachuk is the is the leader but he's also not you know preventing shabot from from being a leader as well right and I think that that's important. I think that if you're a real leader, um, what you're mostly doing is enabling everyone and you know to kind of be their the best version of themselves. And it it sure seems to me like you know Shabot is is playing an important role um, in the team's uh, leadership as well. So no, I I agree. Big step, big step forward for Brady. Um, yeah, all the all the point stuff that you talked about is is totally relevant. I guess the way that I see that manifesting is from a kind of on ice skills thing i found that he is more patient with the puck um particularly Mm. on the power play he's less likely to just jam it into the goalie's pads um which i think in the first couple of seasons you know was a, a noble instinct you know get the puck on that as fast as you can but i think he's come to realize that um that's not always the best play sometimes you know hold it for a second and there, there'll be a better option. So that's, I think his game has matured that way. 
And I also think that the physical side of his game has matured as well in the sense that I don't, I don't see him running around. He, he was, he was always better at that than I thought he would be. I, when they drafted him, I was a little bit skeptical about um, him, you know, maybe taking too many foolish penalties and he's never been that bad about it, but I feel like he's been very disciplined this year. Um, there's been, I'm sure a lot of times where he was tempted to, you know, do something that would have, merited a penalty um and he's been very restrained in that regard he's still physical he still stands up for his guys he still you know sets the tone as it were um but i i think that's been a real step forward for him as well absolutely yeah now um your third and final positive development yeah so i think anton forsberg's another obvious one i i was initially a little bit hesitant to put him on the list because it is still a relatively small sample size. Um, you know, he still hasn't played that many games. He's got an NHL track record prior to this of not being that great. So, you know, all the caveats in there. But he's 11th um, in save percentage for goalies that have made at least, like, you know, 25 appearances was the filter I used. So, you know, mm-hmm. basically anyone who's played kind of a, a, some minimal amount of games. And he looks the part. I'm definitely not a, a, a goalie expert, but um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't look like a fluke. It doesn't seem like you know pucks are just randomly hitting him. Um, and that's something steady goaltending, not just steady good goaltending, is something the Sens haven't had, you know, since Craig Anderson was healthy and able. Right, so it's been a long time. Um, and especially in light of what's gone down with Matt Murray, which I think we're going to get to in the negatives, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the emergence of Anton Forsberg is, has been huge. For sure. I mean, it's a fantastic waiver pickup from last season. And, you know, a lot of time, a lot of times with goalies, you never know if you're going to have a late bloomer on your hands. And this is a guy who has been good in Sweden, has been good in the AHL. So like, who knows? Maybe he's just put it all together, and um, yeah, like it, it's just found money for them. And I think it'll be very interesting to see if they can go. What is this? Their fourth kind of backup goalie they've resigned to multiple <laughs> years. So they had Hammond, Condon, Nielsen, and now uh, Forsberg. So they've been over three so far in terms of successful um, backup goalies resigning, and. Yeah, I mean, who knows what they're going to do next season. Like, I guess we can get to, to Murray in a, in a little bit there, but, you know, what their plans are for, for them in terms of games played, if Forsberg's going to be the expected starter, I don't know. But he's certainly earned the new contract, and I, I feel I feel really happy for him because he was claimed on waivers, what, I think three times last season or something, and, you know, had just moved around so much, especially, you know, in the middle of COVID and everything. So the fact that he actually has a stable home for the next couple seasons must be really nice for him. Oh yeah. Huge. I mean, huge feel good story. I, I seems like he is in some ways, um, his story I think is actually kind of similar to Hammond's in that, you know, strong, um, you know, minor his numbers bounced around a lot, never really got an opportunity and then 
you know, was able to put it together for 25, 30 games, right? Um, and he's changed his life, right? You know, he's he's now, he's got the contract. Anyone who's playing professional hockey is always looking for, you know, that contract that will set them up for life. And he's got that, so I'm, I'm happy for him. Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, the last positive development for me, I would say, um, is Alex Formanton showing that he can score. You know, he's got 18 goals this season. He, there was a point, maybe like halfway through the season, where it was looking like he could potentially even be a top six guy, which, you know, I wouldn't necessarily completely rule out yet. But, you know, he's overall this season been more of a, a perfect third line player. But teams that make the playoffs, want to be contenders, need guys like Alex Formanton, though. He can kind of do it all. He can score. He can kill penalties. You know, he leads the league in shorthanded goals with five. So you need those guys who can kind of play up and down in the lineup. You know, I don't know if he's officially the fastest player in the league, but if not, he's like top three. It's just so much fun to watch him. And I think he can get even better from this point. But I think there were real questions, especially even in the first few months of the season, if he could actually be like an impact player. And yeah, maybe he's not like a top six guy, but can still have a lot of impact on that third line still. Absolutely. I, my, my, con, my feelings about Formanton were similar to what you just said in that I always felt like he was going to be an NHL player because he was such a good skater. Like he, his, the guys who skate like Formanton always get at least a cup of tea in the NHL, right? Like you, you, you'd have to have hands of total stone and I don't know, be a total, total brickhead or something to, as uh, Brady Kachuk would say to, um, to not play in the NHL when you can skate like that. Um, I have in the past had reservations about his potential in terms of, you know, being an impact player. I think that he is, I, to me, he's very much solidified himself as uh, a third line guy. And, you know, maybe on a really deep team, he's, he's a fourth line guy. I'm not, I, I never really got sold on, on the top six thing. Um, he certainly went through a period of time, I think it was in February, um, where he was on a heater. Um, but he was also, you know, not to be too cold about it, but he was scoring on something like 25% of his shots for a period mm-hmm. of time there. And that just, you know, was was never going to sustain. And you can kind of tell it's never going to sustain because he um, is good with the puck, um, but he's not like super skilled with the puck. And so I think what he settles into is what you were just describing. Very good NHL teams, like teams that contend for the Stanley Cup, have guys like Alex Formanton in their bot in their bottom six, right? And I think as Sens fans, um, one of the things that's happened is that it's been so long since the Sens have had an actual good forward roster, like with actual depth, that I kind of feel like we as a group have forgotten what a good team looks like. (laughs) So you see, and I don't mean this as a slight to Formanton, but you see a guy like Formanton who's like a legitimately useful NHLer. And when you're used to seeing the types of rosters that the Sens have rolled out for the last few years, you're like, oh my God, this this guy's top six. Maybe maybe you could play on your top line. And you (laughs) kind of forget, like, you know, he's a good NHLer, but this is what a good third line NHLer looks like. And I, I think 
because of the this like how special his speed is and because of what you were saying he kills penalties um he just impacts the game in a lot of ways i think he's got a future ahead of him of, of being the type of guy that you know you have on the ice in the last minute of a one goal game in the third period when you're leading probably not when you're trailing but you know to protect the lead i i think he's going to be a really useful player for the uh, for the sens you know big big step forward this year i i totally agree with you there were some very legitimate questions about whether he was going to be more than a fourth liner because you know let's not forget he's 23 this year right he's yeah. not like formington's not 18 um this is maybe there's a little bit more to him but this is probably close to the finished product right this is about when nhl players peak um now he could sustain this for like five six years and that would be wonderful um but uh yeah him he's him solidifying his role in the nhl was was a big win for the Sens for sure mm-hmm. and getting that for curtis lazar absolute huge <laughs> yep. win for them so you know a really good scenario for alex formanton now we just talked about six really positive developments for the season and you know we went there was so much to say about those six things and i still had more things listed on here we don't have to get into them but i thought i could just quickly uh quickly note we didn't even talk about josh norris um you know being a potential 40 goal guy uh in the future and and a probable 30 goal guy um, moving forward, Matthew Joseph potentially being a hidden gem. Again, probably not a top six guy like Formanton, but can be very, very solid on the third line. I'm I'm pretty excited about him. You know, Artem Zub repeating his success. I wouldn't say he necessarily got better, but he repeated his success from, from last season, and that is really huge and very much needed for the Senators team. So there was like nine things we just came up with, despite the fact that this team was somehow worse than last season. Yeah, no, I, I, as I said at the very start, there are um, some things that were disappointing about the season overall, but like last year, this this year, maybe even more so, certainly last year and then this year um, have felt like two seasons where even though the record wasn't what we'd hoped for, there were real positives to take. You know, they started the rebuild, you know, five seasons ago now, and the first few seasons were not optimal, um, you know, and it was hard to take many positives out of what yeah. was going on. Um, but these, you know, there are very real positives this year for sure. Mm-hmm. And so obviously we have those positives. Um, I don't think people would necessarily call this a successful season just because, you know, I think a lot of people were expecting the team to not really make the playoffs, but at least like, you know, maybe be in the hunt and by around Christmas or something like that. So with that in mind, I thought we could go over some negative and negative developments now. Um, and again, Nate, I'll let you go first. Sure. So I, I think the, the first one is, is something we've already mentioned, which is there's no obvious step forward from a record perspective. They actually have a lower points percentage, um, 444 as of this recording versus 455 last year um and i think more discouragingly don't have any meaningful progress in the underlying five on five metrics so your shot attempts and your expected goals um they're 21st and 24th by shots and expected goals this year um versus 22nd for both categories last year so virtually identical 
And that's discouraging because I understand that there are caveats. There were injuries. There was COVID. There were things that disrupted this team. But the majority of the players that are supposed to be the key cogs and propelling this team to being good, you know, played the majority of the games, right? Um, you know, even though Brady Kachuk held out, uh, you know, he's been in the lineup for 77 games. He's going to end up playing, you know, 79 of 82. That's pretty good. You know, Josh Norris was injured, but he's still going to end up playing 66 or 67 games, I think. You know, that's a, a good chunk of the season uh, to, you know, Thomas... Uh, Shabot is going to have missed some games, but you know he's still going to be in for you know 60-ish games. Like, yeah, there there are some mitigating factors here. Don't get me wrong, but um, a lot of the guys that are that are supposed to make this team good, you know, as part of the rebuild, are on the team, and they played the majority of the games, and there wasn't a big improvement. Um, so that 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 is definitely a bit of a negative. It's a little bit it's a little bit concerning um, because, you know, I guess the argument you could make if you wanted to go against that is, you know, Sanderson and, and Pinto haven't arrived. You know, I, I, I have some mm-hmm. sympathy for that, but, you know, most of the key guys are already there and you, we didn't see meaningful progress um, across some key measures. Yeah, definitely. And that's a lot of pressure to put on on two players, specifically Sanderson, because, I think people are kind of expecting him to be a bit of a savior. And I think to your point about the possession metrics and things like that, I guess you would say that's a bit of a indictment towards DJ Smith, right? Where it doesn't always seem like he has a good team structure, especially defensively. You know, they just bleed shots against. And a lot of that is because, you know, the personnel on, on the back end isn't very good, but you'd still hope to see a bit of improvement. Like I can almost guarantee there would be other coaches in the NHL right now that if they took over the team, they would improve the the team shot metrics drastically. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, I'm fine with DJ Smith. I don't think he's like the main reason they've been bad, but I also don't think he's necessarily amazing. Um, But yeah, I think we can probably get into a bit more about DJ Smith a bit later, but um, I'm going to move on to the next one, which is, let's see here. I want, what should I pick? I, I guess I'll say Nikita Zaitsev. Um, now there is a chance that they move on him, move on from him in the off season. I will kind of believe that when I see it though, like maybe they buy him out. That is certainly an option, and he has been healthy scratched sometimes, but there's still, I don't know, it's a weird thing with DJ Smith, like, he can either be healthy scratched, or, you know, he's played with Thomas Shabbat a decent amount this season as well, so I just, I, it it sort of comes back to the idea that they don't really know how to properly evaluate a good defenseman, right? Like, that's been a problem for years, so... Zaitsev sort of encapsulates that like it's not like his play got worse necessarily it's just that he's sort of always been this player and there's just a lot of issues on the back end and he kind of is the epitome of that I guess yeah I think um you know there's a lot of 
rationalizing among Sens fans when it comes to Saitsev uh, <laughs> and his and his role on the team, um, particularly as it pertains to um, DJ Smith's relationship with him. I I think yeah I'm yeah without getting doing the DJ thing, which I think we're going to do later. Um, all of the evidence points to the fact that DJ thinks that Zaitsev is good. Like he's never played him, you know, less than 18 to 20 minutes a game when he's healthy. There was like one healthy scratch. The other times he's missed, there's always been like some mitigating explanation. Like, you know, he was banged up or he was a little sick. Like, I don't, I, I think DJ's smart enough to know Zaitsev's not the solution. Like they wouldn't be trying Hamannik with with Shebo if they didn't think that, you know, there were better options than Zaitsev available. But I I do think DJ at least thinks he's good at what he does. Like he thinks Zaitsev is good at defending. He said as much. Called him elite once. That might have been overstating things a little <laughs> bit. But um, you know, I I have no reason to disbelieve DJ when he says he says that he thinks Nikita Zaitsev is good at defending. I think he actually believes that. I don't think it's like some shell game where he's you know pretending to believe one thing when he believes another so yeah i mean the 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 ongoing kind of presence and impact that he has you know i hate to be too negative about one player but it really is remarkable like following like you every pairing that he's on sometimes there's a blip at the start where they kind of you know hold their head above water but event just eventually they kind of start drowning and eventually they're just you know bleeding shots and bleeding chances against. Um, I could imagine a world in which, you know, in a very sheltered third pairing role when he's paying 15 minutes a game that he would be fine. Um, but that's I mean that's just not how he's been deployed. So yeah, I mean his his continued influence on the team has definitely been right. a bit of a negative this year. Yeah, exactly. And and like you said, like I don't want it to be like this guy sucks. I hate him. It's more just like, I just like, he's being told to have a certain role. He's not the one insisting he's playing 20 to 25 minutes a night. Like, you know, if, if Ottawa was playing him those 15 minutes instead, I'm sure he he would be fine. So yeah, it's more about the team in general, but um, as I said, like Zaitsev sort of is the main, main character for that. Would you like to pick your next negative development? Sure. I this one's not anyone's fault really, but I I think the continued bad health for Colin White is a pretty big bummer. Yeah. Um I think it's it's seems pretty likely that he's going to get bought out now. Um this was the year where he really needed to to show something. And I feel badly because Colin White seems Again, we can only know so much, but he seems like a legitimately good dude who has just been <clears throat> beset by injuries. And that's not his fault. Um, the way that he's gotten hurt is unlucky. And, you know, I would never blame a player for being injured anyways. Uh, I think he's actually looked pretty useful, like when he's been healthy. He does possession metrics good he's he's a very i like to me actually i think a third line that had alex formanton and colin white on it maybe it's shane pinto whoever else like those two are to me great third liners they will drive the puck the right way for you just enough offensive threat that you know the other team can't throw out 
their fourth line and fall asleep. You know, seem like good guys. Definitely, you know, do all the, check all the little boxes. Like I, I really think he is a, 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 a good NHLer. Like he's a helpful NHLer. Does not score enough for the money that they're they're going to be paying him. And you know, when he misses that many games, there's just no way that he was going to be able to produce enough to to justify sticking around. So yeah, his his bad health was was a pretty big was a pretty big negative and a pretty big bummer for me. It's tough because so he's on pace for 34 points this season and like you said like he's he has been a positive impact player and I think he can be on that third line but yeah like 4.75 million that that is not cheap and especially for a team that isn't going to be spending spending to the cap that is just a lot of money like if he was making you know two to two and a half maybe like maybe three million max that that's fine but it's it's tough then again uh again something we could talk about later but it's also frustrating to see them just all of a sudden give three million dollars to hammonick when (laughs) that was you know i don't think that was really thought about too much but going back to white yeah he i think once he leaves it's pretty fair to say that the team will be worse. Not necessarily like by a ton, but he's a good NHL player and it just sucks that they'll have to lose him just because he's making too much money. Yeah, I totally agree. I I've I've his I've I've sometimes I, I go back and forth on this a little bit. I'm I sometimes think it would be a bad idea for them to to buy him out before this season. Um I thought it would be a bad idea for them to buy him out because they just don't have wonderful forward depth. Mm-hmm. You know, what does their right wing depth look like right now? It's Batherson Brown and then, you know, Watson, who, if not white. Yeah. You I mean, you see, yeah. So this is, it gets, it gets gnarly fast. Right. So, um, especially because the way the Sens are currently constructed, they do not have, uh, enough scoring in their top six that you can have, a lack of scoring in your bottom six, right? There are lots of ways to to build a successful NHL roster, um, but one of them, you know, the way that maybe the Sens are going to have to go, depending on what happens this off season, is to be trying to score by committee. And a guy like Colin White on your third line is the kind of guy that can be, you know, helpful in that context. Like you can't have a, you know, someone that won't contribute to anything on your third line. So in in that sense, I'd I'd historically been of the mind that you know, buying him out would make them worse and they need to replace him anyways and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he just, his health problems are such that it's difficult to envision a world in which, you know, he can be counted on to produce, you know, at, at the, at yeah, what, what he's being paid for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just not going to be that guy. And pretty much whenever they talk about the future, White isn't even included when DJ or Dorian talks about the team. So, it is kind of sad. It kind of sucks. But, um, okay, the second one for me, I will say, I don't think it's... I mean, I think we have to mention Matt Murray here. Just the fact that he cannot stay healthy. It's it's pretty insane because right before that awful, awful game against Arizona, he was actually playing really well. I, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but he had like uh, over like a 920 save percentage for a good amount of time. Even his overall season save percentage was around 920, some something that high. And now 
you know, across two seasons and 47 games, he's at 899 for Ottawa. And it's just consistency on the ice, consistency in terms of his health. Like, I don't know if there's something else going on that we don't know about because it seems like a lot of the messaging with the media has been kind of cryptic in terms of like, like, I I don't want to speculate, you know, if it's like a mental thing or, or what, but it seems like there's something else going on. Um, and I really don't know what to expect with him next season. Like, is he even going to play? Is he, I don't know. So it is just too bad that, you know, he isn't even like an option, um, or hasn't been an option for the past few months for the team. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, I think it's a physical thing. Um, he's not been consistently healthy for a long time this was this was kind of an i feel like an underrated risk of the sense trading for him that for whatever reason they just kind of brushed aside like murray's only played 50 games in a season once in 2018-19 and even that was only 50 games and the two seasons prior to that even the one that kind of sends fans most remember him for the 2016-17 season when he um you know came in and and saved Pittsburgh <laughs> in the conference finals. He only played 49 games. He's basically never been consistently healthy in the NHL and there was pretty good evidence that problem was getting worse before they traded for him. And I just kind of like Colin White, <clears throat> I just don't see it being a realistic bet that he's going to be, you know, healthy. Clearly something chronic is going on here. Um, yeah. The thing about, you know, NHL injury disclosures, we're all guessing a little bit, you know, the way the Sens org talks about it sounds like it's a, a neck upper body thing. Um, but he's, he's clearly, he's clearly too injured to be can kind of, you know, effective in the way he needs to be to pick up on your point briefly about what's going on with him in terms of his relationship with the organization. Clearly the demotion was not taken well. Um, mm-hmm. I think this is, again, you know, I talked about stuff that we've kind of forgotten because the season's been going on for a while. That like the demotion of, of Murray Delzato to a lesser degree was kind of a, I don't know, bold choice by the Sens, you know, sending down, NHL vets like that to the AHL is just not really something that teams do. I'm not saying they shouldn't. Um, like I'm not like Murray and Delzato had not played well, and you know you could make an argument that they deserve to be in NHL based on their play. But it's just not how you like quote unquote treat veterans, right? So I have no inside intel about what happened in terms of the relationship and how it got, you know, so sour like that. But it does, I would, I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of smoke about, you know, his overall relationship, if not with DJ specifically, then with the organization in general, though it certainly seems like with DJ. Definitely, yeah. I honestly completely forgot about that that, that even happened. So it is, it is very interesting to think about. Um, who knows what we'll get from him next season. But 
Okay, one one more each for negative development. Um, what's your third one here? Well, you actually <laughs> you took you took mine. Murray's health. Oh, was, sorry. Uh, there you go. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the I guess the other kind of negative development. <clears throat> this is more of a, a minor negative, I suppose. Um, and I say this as you know one of his biggest fans is I feel like Brandstrom didn't take as much of a step forward as I'd hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the whole. There was a lot of noise in the fan base and in the media around how he had not been good, you know, in the first 30 games of the season or whatever. And I think that was, you know, fair. Um, and there was a lot of noise about, okay, you know, what's it, like, what's it going to take to kind of get him going? And I'd always been of the mind that there were a lot, you could see a lot of things that he was doing well that made me think, okay, this will eventually translate. Maybe he just needs a situation change. And his pairing with Zub has been good. Since since he started playing with Zub, you know, they're a, better than break-even on shots. They're better than break-even and on chances. They are exactly even on goals. You know, if your second pair does that, that's pretty good. Like, that's, you know, your third pair does that, you're ecstatic. So, I think... You know, his work with Zub has shown that he can be an NHLer. Like I, I, I think there's enough. Like he's shown enough that he's an NHLer. I was hoping for more than that. Like I, I was hoping that you know he'd show that he was a clear top four guy. I don't think he's he's shown that. So that's that's a bit of a disappointment. I'm not ready to say. I think it would be a huge mistake, by the way, for the Sens to move on from him in the off season without some sort of easy replacement. Um, which we can talk about in a second, but um, he hasn't he hasn't become the kind of next level guy that I was hoping. He's just kind of proven that you know he's an NHLer. Yeah, it's tough because like there have been times where I remember it was the game against the Penguins in I think like January or something, and even DJ, DJ Smith was saying, "Yeah, he's arrived. Like he's here. Like this is what we're looking for," and we were all saying the same thing. And then, you know, he had a period where he wasn't that great. Um, And I hadn't actually realized until you pointed out to me on Twitter that he was doing quite well with Zub. I hadn't actually looked at that, at those numbers. But yeah, it's, it's a tough season because he spent a lot of time with Josh Brown and Josh Brown really tanked his numbers. So like when you look at Branstrom's numbers overall, they're pretty bad. They're not good. No, they're they're not good. Like that's... Yeah, I mean but, that's kind of what I was saying. Like this, his, yeah. the partnership with Brown was was not good, and I'm willing <clears throat> to say, you know, a lot of that is Josh Brown is not good. But but at the same time, you know, I think it's very fair to say like Zub is a good defender, right? Mm-hmm. And ideally, Zub, you know, maybe plays with Chabot, but you know, he should be one of your top guys. And if it takes like a guy like Zub you know, to, to make Brandstrom good, eh, that's not a great sign. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah Like, yeah. what what you would want is is him to be able... Now, I, I'm just not sure that Brandstrom's ever played with anyone that wasn't either, you know, quite good, like Zub, or a total hack, right? So it's... I find it difficult to evaluate him in that sense. <laughs> um, like, I would actually, you know, be mildly curious to see what a Brandstrom-Hamanick pairing would look like. I'm really very low on... Hamannick playing on the first pair with Chabot, I think that's a 
the sends are setting themselves up for a lot of pain if they try to do that. Um, so I would be interested to see something like Hemonic. I think Hemonic Brandstrom could be a potentially great third pair. Like that's that's the kind of thing that that I think you know you play those two in sheltered minutes could be good. Yeah, and the only thing I'll say is that like overall, because of what of what Brandstrom has done in his tenure in Ottawa. I just don't have a ton of confidence that he's going to be successful in Ottawa. Like, I, I just don't think... So Shabbat is obviously going to be on that first pairing. Almost a lock that Sanderson is going to be on that second pairing. So after that, I just don't know if they want a guy like Brandstrom who's small and, you know, let's face it, plays small. He, you know, isn't going to be the most physical. It's not like he's a necessarily a pushover, but he's, you know, he's a smaller guy. I don't know if they necessarily want that guy on the third pairing unless you want him with Sanderson, which I think could actually work. So I I would want to see that maybe next season if they had Branson on the right side. But I just don't know if, like, if you're saying he's a okay second pairing defenseman but doesn't stand out too much, I don't know if they necessarily want him. Um, so he he might end up being like a, a decently impactful player somewhere else. I just worry that they're going to give up on him because they, you know, prefer Sanderson, I guess. Oh, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think, yes, clearly they prefer Sanderson. They, <laughs> they've been talking yeah. up that you, you said earlier, you know, people think that Sanderson's going to be the savior. I, I hope Josh Sanderson, uh, pardon Jake Sanderson, not Josh Sanderson. <laughs> Jake Sanderson is, you know, everything that everyone hopes he will be, because that would be wonderful. But yeah, the hype, I I don't remember the last time a Sens prospect was this hyped. I yeah. feel like he's even more hyped than Stuzlo was. Um, the main reason that I think that the Sens would be making a big mistake to move Brandstrom in the offseason is because we have not seen Sanderson play a single NHL game. And I think he's going to be good. The Sens thinks he, think he's, he's going to be good. But um, you know, this is ostensibly a team that has, you know, playoff aspirations next year. And, you know, Jake Sanderson is going to be 20 years old. And it is not wise to just pencil in a 20-year-old on your second pair, um, especially when the guy that you've got as your third pairing defenseman, Holden, is 34. Like, And, you know, Holden has been nice and solid and i'm not saying bad things about holden but he has his his limitations and he's actually sorry he's gonna be 35 before the season starts i would be very careful about saying you know we've got our left side set for next season until you've seen sanderson play um you know if they play 20 games and sanderson looks fantastic and you know holden looks like he hasn't lost another half step um because as a sidebar he's been getting roasted at times this year um i think still serviceable but you know with defensemen the, the drop-off happens fast um so i would be very careful about moving brandstrom until you know that sanderson can do it, it it's been 20 games you, you he can do it holden looks like he's still fine <clears throat> you know fine i and unless brandstrom you know blows us blows them away then i can i can totally see the rationale but it's awfully easy to imagine a world where you know, they deal him in the off season and Sanderson has the type of cur- learning curve that most 20 year old NHL defensemen have and is good, but not, you know, 
there quite yet. And suddenly, you know, you're, you know, eight and 14 to start the season and your, your playoffs are, are gone. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I would be, I would be very, very careful about moving on from Brandstrom until they've actually seen uh, um, Sanderson play. Definitely agreed on, on all those can't be, you know, you can't really be counting on a guy like Sanderson before he's, he's actually done it, but as exciting as he is now, um, I'm going to save my last point for, cause we'll talk about it later. Um, but kind of want to <laughs> get to these last, last couple points here. I don't want to keep you for too, too long, but we have to mention, of course, the passing of Eugene Melnick, which happened, uh, maybe what, three, four weeks ago now. And, you know, it's been a weird situation for everyone involved. And I mean, obviously our, our hearts go out to his loved ones and it's just, it's been a very strange situation, but do you have any thoughts on the passing of Melnick and the implications of it? Yeah. Um, I mean, first off, yes, this, the, everything you're saying, you know, my condolences <clears throat> to his, his family, obviously, um, that's, you know, especially his daughters, um, you know, losing a parent is impossibly difficult. So, you know, they have, they have my deepest sympathies in that regard. Um, I think it would be um, a mistake for the Sens to let, as an organization, <clears throat> to let this opportunity um, pass in terms of reimagining their relationship with the community. So I wrote a, not to pump my own tires here too much, but. Um, you know, if you're listening to the podcast, presumably you read the website. Um, you know, I wrote um, a piece a couple weeks ago uh, that was, you know, reflecting on the um, the reporting that kind of come out of the Athletic uh, about Melnick's tenure as the owner of the Sens and how he was, as the piece described, a very complicated man. You know, acts of generosity, um, but then also some pretty um terrible behavior um Mm -hmm. based on what was reported there and i think that because of the way that the sens organization was set up with melnick being the sole proprietor and really you know kind of running in some ways as you know the most influential person he very he had a very hands-on approach right this wasn't this wasn't an owner who you know was sitting back and and letting the, the business run itself there were a lot of relationships in the community that became strained, um, you know, particularly the business community, um, you know, the relationship with OSEG, obviously all of the fallout from the failed bid at Le Breton with, uh, with Ruddy. I think, you know, in the athletic story, the reporting about Melnick, being upset about, you know, the love is love campaign, um, the sense it I, has been, you know, I think it's, it's worth noting that, you know, our site and others have pointed out over the years how little uh, the sense had been involved in, you know, LGBTQ um, IA efforts, um, how little work they did, um, you know, in, in the Hockey Diversity Alliance, 
Um, there are a lot of things about, you know, the Sen's relationship with various minority groups that stand to be greatly improved, and I think can be greatly improved now. Like, there is uh, a period of time where people are going to be willing to let bygones be bygones, and I think there's some positive signs already in that regard. You know, from the business perspective, the sense of partnering with OSEG on the World Juniors bid, which is not something I could have imagined, <laughs> you know, <laughs> while Melnick was still in charge. Um, I think, you know, it's very symbolic and, you know, maybe not super immediately impactful, but I think Kachuk, you know, having lunch with Daniel Alfredson, who was very much persona non grata uh, with the Sens organization, you know, is, is symbolically important. So I think the Sens, you know, it's, 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 I'm, you know, again, sad for Malnick's family. Um, in a, in a way it's the end of a, a chapter. Um, but I think that the Sens have a lot of work to do in the community and they have a lot of work to do with their fan base and I think they have a really good opportunity to do it now. The, the hockey team, like the, the on-ice product, is going to get better in the next couple of seasons just you know, by virtue of where they are in the rebuild. And that'll bring some people back. But um, if they're willing to do the work in the community and with the fans, and that's, that's a lot across a wide spectrum of things, um, I, I think this is a really golden opportunity to 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 reset the, the the relationships with a lot of folks. Right. What you're saying is, you know, there's just such a, such potential for things to be so different, right? Within like, even just mm -hmm. within the next year, like who knows what, what's going to happen, but there's been, you know, Friedman and a lot of other national reporters saying that there's like up to half a dozen potential buyers um, for the team. And, even Nick Kiprios, I don't know how much you can put into this, but even he, he, you know, he was saying that he could see the team being sold for up to 900 million, which I think would be definitely in the high end. But considering the Kraken were sold for 650 million, I don't think the NHL would allow a sale for anything less. So I think, you know, maybe seven to 800 million, that is um, a lot, even though I think the Forbes evaluation was like five something. So, you know, this is a team that is going to be very sought after and, you know, haven't even talked about the fact that LeBreton is obviously not a shoe in but it seems like the likely scenario, and we would have said that six years ago too, but it seems like that could actually happen. And, you know, this is, it, as you say, it's a new chapter, right? It, it's who knows what will happen and... In all honesty, it'll probably be a group that isn't just one person, right? Isn't just one um, one businessman or business person. It's going to be a group, and hopefully that group includes a guy like Alfredson, and you know, and Chris Phillips comes back as well. And it would just be nice to have some, I guess, optimism in terms of who is owning the team, and and obviously, I need to like preface all of this with like. No one was wishing ill on, on Melnick. Like, no one wanted th this to happen. Like, they just wanted him to sell the team. So it's unfortunate that 
you know, this whole conversation is coming after his death, but it's also, you know, you're, you're lying to yourself if you're not thinking of these things. And um, yeah, like the NHL obviously isn't going to have two 20 something year old daughters um, running an NHL franchise. So I don't know how quickly this will happen, but I'm sure over the summer there will be at least something happening. Yeah, I I think so. You know, as people that are you know outside his immediate family, and I haven't seen any reporting or insider information about it. Like the the process of his estate um, is not public knowledge, so we're all guessing to, to some degree. Who knows what it says? Um, in very broad terms, <clears throat> estates that are not complex can take a long time to resolve. So estates that are this complex could take a very long time to resolve. Um, I think that um, the nature of Melnick's finances as we knew them is that the Sens were by far his biggest asset and that, you know, if the general reporting is to be believed, then you know, he has some liabilities. He's got some debts that need to be repaid. And, um, you know, that may involve the sale of, of the franchise. I think to your point about his, his daughters taking over, um, I suppose it's possible. And this is, you know, not my area of expertise. It would be a little surprising to me. And it would be, you know, somewhat unusual for an ownership group that young. There are some franchises, other like pro sport franchises in North America, you know, that have gone through multi-generational ownership. You know, there's some um, famous ones in the NFL, the Spanoses own the Chargers and the Davises, you know, Al down to Mark own the Raiders. But in most of these cases where there's intergenerational, you know, wealth transfer for lack of a better term, the, um, next generation that inherits the team are almost always adults um, of a certain age. They've almost always been involved in the business for a period of time. Um, it would just stand to reason that, um, you know, selling the team, closing off <clears throat> the necessary debts, or whatever would would seem to me like what would be you know in the best financial interests of the Melnick estate, in my opinion. Um, I'm totally guessing, but you know, based on what we know, based on what you know, the the duty of executors are going to be. Um, as you said, the franchise, you know, who knows exactly what they would sell for, but it seems very likely that it would be on the, you know, north end of, you know, five to 600, maybe more uh, million dollars. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's a lot, a lot of yeah. money. So I think he bought um, it for 92 or no, I think it was 92 Canadian. So it was like 120 something American. Oh, massive profit, massive, yeah. massive profit. Um, we, we don't need to debate the ongoing profitability of the sends or not um my general feeling there is that as an operation they were i i believe mostly profitable um 
save the last couple of years because of COVID. Like there's a reason franchise valuations go up the way they do. But yeah, at the very least, you know, turning that original investment into five or six hundred million dollars in, you know, cash that has got to be awfully appealing. And I think most encouragingly to to your point about outside groups being interested, you know, all the reporting we've seen, you know, including by folks like Ian Mendez, who's obviously very credible in this regard, is that there are a number of groups that are interested and that those groups are interested in keeping it in Ottawa. Yeah. So I I guess my kind of main conclusion from this is in some way, shape or form, whether it is, you know, staying with Melnick's daughters, um, which uh, by the way, the board of governors would need to approve because it is technically still a change in ownership. So, you know, that whether it's with the Mel- Melnick's daughters or with a new outside group, the senators are going to be in Ottawa. There's just, there's nothing to indicate to the contrary. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, nothing too much else to add there, but it certainly is just a, a new era and like just a, I don't really know how to put it other than it'll be fascinating to see how, how it turns out. But now for the last section here, um, honestly, I feel like we could talk about this for so long. So there was, there was one question on Twitter from our, our friend Spencer Blake. Um, and I feel like this kind of encapsulates the, you know, the idea of what I was going for with this last section anyway. So I'll read his question um, and you can start there. So he asks, were there any decisions or moves made that instill you with confidence that this team can take the ne- uh, can take the next step next season? I think the Nick Paul trade was um, was was very good from um, a process perspective in that the Sens, um, whether you agree with their decision to not offer him a contract that would have kept him or not, like set that aside um, because I think that's a separate conversation. Once they decided that they were going to trade Nick Paul, getting someone like Matthew Joseph is a really good process trade in my perspective, from my perspective, because the other option to getting a player like Joseph would have been um, getting a pick. Uh, and I don't think that serves them right now. I think they yeah. correctly recognized they needed an NHL depth. They took a swing on a guy who's got some real upside is young, is cost controlled. Um, so that, that trade, or at least the thought process that went into that trade, um, is actually a hopeful one for me because it, to me, shows me that Dorian understands or management, you know, whichever the peers, that they understand the the for the need for forward depth and that um, they needed to replace Nick Paul, that they couldn't just you know, count on an internal option that wasn't there. So it seemed, it may seem like kind of a minor thing, but um, that gave me um, some, some confidence. Definitely. And I like that trade at the time. I like it even more now, even though Paul has been playing well in Tampa, but he probably won't be worth the contract that he gets. And yeah, like if they can make more moves like that, I will be quite confident. It's just, in the offseason, I don't I don't have much faith in Dorian and their pro scouting to properly evaluate who they should add to this group because they do have this good core. Like we've 
been saying, you know, for so much of this episode, like they have really exciting players, um, but they just haven't been able to supplement them with, with good depth and good veteran players. And I just think the, even the thought process behind the Hamannick trade, I just thought was flawed because, you know, I think, what was it? He, he wanted to give up a fourth, but then he didn't have a fourth. So he had to give up the third. And then the funny thing is they end up getting a couple fourths back anyway. So it's just like, uh, I, I don't know. And I'm, I don't think Hamannick is really the answer. And I'm kind of worried that they won't do much else on the back end in the offseason. So, I mean, who knows if, like we say, if, if there's new ownership and maybe Dorian's not even here. But they there's a lot of pressure to actually add to this group and not just solely rely on these six, seven, eight players, young players that uh, have already proven themselves. Totally. I, I think that from the perspective of, of I'll lump Dorian and Smith together here a little bit. I think that when the Sens announced the rebuild, they bought themselves a fair amount of time. It's actually a genius move when you think about it from Dorian's yeah. perspective in terms of job security. We're going to be terrible. <laughs> so, you know, no <laughs> expectations for the next few years. Um, you know, basically guarantees you an NHL job while while the rebuild is going on. Um, so they promised us basically that they would be bad for the next few years. Bear with us. We're going to be bad. And then in the future, it will allow us to be good because we were bad. And the trick is at some point you do need to be good. Um, yeah. <laughs> and to your point, the the core of guys that they've got, I think, are are the kind of outline of a of a team that can be good. But as we were talking about in the negatives, you know, the fact they didn't take a step forward this year, despite the core being mostly there, um, was a little bit disconcerting. And if it happens again next year, then there will need to be some. Then heads will roll. I I think the only way, the way these things usually play out, is that. Um, if the GM is secure with ownership, i.e., um, you know, the same situation kind of persists for the next year, I, I, it's hard for me to envision Dorian's job being in jeopardy, but I think DJ's job could be. And this is not to say that I think DJ's done a bad job or anything, but if you're the GM of a team that's going through a rebuild and you've got all the players that you're going to get and you give them to the coach and they don't, make the playoffs well okay you've done you already did the rebuild like you did all the trades you changed the whole roster um you gonna do it again no so you know that's when the coach gets fired uh so i think they can miss the playoffs and and dj keeps his job next year if they're really close like you know they miss on game 80 or something um i think if they're out of it you know with 10 games to go next year um I, I think uh, I think DJ's DJ's gone. No, no, I don't think any kind of not necessarily ill reflection on him or anything. Um, like he he could do a great job coaching next year, but at some point they do need to deliver a result. And um, you know, this year it seemed like it was going to be the year where they needed to deliver a result. Then COVID hit and everyone got hurt, and you know I think that bought them a year. Uh, but they're going to need to deliver a result next year. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that, final question for you, Nate. Finish the sentence. The Ottawa Senators will make the playoffs in 2023 if blank. 
uh, if they trade for Kevin Fiala, um, or someone, or no, or someone like that. I think that um, for the first time in a very long time, um, even though there's some aspects of their defense group that I don't love, you know, assuming Sanderson is is some approximation of what we think he's going to be, I count, you know, as many as four or five good NHL defenders on their blue line, which they haven't had since 2007. Um, you know, legit, legit blue line. They have the outline of a good forward group. They are missing one or two top line scorers. Um, they will make the playoffs if they, without subtracting from, you know, their core, like they need to trade prospects or picks or, or something, right? You can't mm-hmm. be trading, you know, like Shane Pinto for, for Kevin Fiala or something, but, um, if if you bring on a guy like Fiala, my actual my actual dream guy, uh, my actual dream guy, uh, the the <laughs> the player that I was I most coveting but is a total impossibility actually is Jesper Bratt, the guy on the Devils, uh, who's a restricted free agent but come out came out uh, of nowhere. I came out of oh I mean he Jesper Bratt's good man. If if yeah. if, if, if if folks didn't know that he was good before this year they, they i don't know they weren't paying attention because yes for brad is a menace and i was having fever dreams about brat and stuzla on a line together because i think that would just be incredible but yeah someone they need they need someone of the kind of fiala you know brat level a guy a guy like that and they make the playoffs yeah i think that's fair i think man that would be so huge if they could actually get a big guy like that and hopefully not a repeat of the Bobby Ryan trade, but um, <laughs> that's, for, that's for another day. But um, all right, well, that'll do it for episode 99. A lot of really good content. Um, Nate, is there anything else you want to plug for the listeners? Um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, one of the things that the sites uh, kind of come to be known for over the years is our uh, prospect and draft coverage. And um, the Sens are staring down another long off season. Um, so we're going to start, um, you know, kicking the, the prospect and draft coverage into gear in the next, uh, couple of weeks. Um, we're going to, we've got a lot of good, exciting content planned there. Uh, so, you know, stay tuned for that. Definitely not biased at all saying here that you should absolutely listen to Nate there, but, um, Nate, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it, Trevor. Thanks. As I wrap it up, reminder that you can find the Cost Per Point cast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. And if you really enjoy it, you can rate and review the podcast on those platforms as well. You can follow me on Twitter at ShackTS, read my articles at Silver7Sends, and also follow my YouTube channel called The Hockey Shack. As I mentioned in the past, episode 100 will be my last, at least for the time being. It's not a goodbye forever, but more of an indefinite hiatus, and I'm sure down the line I'll want to record an episode, but it'll be a while before that happens. Thanks to everyone who supported me along the way, and be sure to tune in for episode 100. Adios.